What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Nicole Bowman is a mother, writer, blogger, and former teacher. She utilizes her degrees in education, childhood development, English, as well as her active pursuit to be a therapist to create thoughtful, advocacy-based content. Through live stage performances, blogging, poetry, and autobiographical writing, Nicole shares about the nuanced abuse she faced as a child, as well as her healing process. We are so grateful that she was willing to speak to us today about all that came next for her amidst her journey through motherhood and the process of unparenting herself. My name is Nicole Bowman, mom of three. How loved ones described me growing up and how loved ones describe me now, it's different. Some of the words may not change, but I think their core meaning is more empowering than it was back in the day. So I think people would describe me now as pretty intense. I love intensely. The way I tell stories is intense. I'm fierce. I'm empathetic. I definitely have always been that person people talk to and I listen. You know what I'm noticing more is a trend of people telling me I'm funny, which has never been my intention or goal but somehow I managed to make people laugh and I'm like, cool, I'll add that to the list of things. I got a husband. We've been married for almost a decade, which slightly blows my mind. I have done a lot of things. I like to call myself a Renaissance woman. I have my bachelor's in English and my master's in education. The last thing I did was teaching English. Now I write some poetry. I write essays. And I put that up on my blog, all the things motherish. The motherish piece is because some of them are directly correlated to my current motherhood status, and others are about my journey to motherhood and then childhood things. So that ish felt like it gave me the opportunity to have as much creative freedom as I wanted. I was born to a mom and dad who met in Germany. They were both in the military. They were both very young, I think just barely 21 was love at first sight. They really knew they wanted a baby and I was their love baby. So that was like an origin story for me of being born from this head over heels love. Growing up with that as kind of the anchoring point was a big juxtaposition to things that I started to sense as a human, even a young human that was different. We stayed overseas for maybe three or four years. They moved to the States and then eventually landed in California. I think life was fairly normal. We generally always had pets around. We did all the kinds of things that families do, birthday parties and camping, dirt bike riding and boating. I did sports. If you were to meet my dad, 
He was the guy in the party people enjoyed talking to. My friends thought I was so lucky I had these fun, amazing parents. They were always partying. But people see that because it looks fun and it's different than the structure and love and the things they have. But there was always an underlining walking on eggshells and tension in the house. It was established pretty quick that I was a friend and confident to my mom and that I was also the person who could navigate handling, I use kind of air quotes for that, my dad. I wasn't expecting emotional, but I can feel the emotion come up because it's a heavy role and you don't often realize the impact of that until you're an adult yourself. My dad never hit us, but he did hit the wall next to us and punch a hole. I did see him crack a windshield out of frustration. He was never physically abusive to my mom in front of us. However, he was sexually abusive to her when he didn't think I was listening. He didn't know my mom confided in me. It's hard because people have asked like, oh, well, did he hit you? And I say, no. You can see almost this change in their face, right? Like, well, how bad could it have been? And it's real bad. I feel all that down to my soul because you never knew how he was going to react. When you find yourself thankful that he hit an object instead of you, it's such a weird mind fuck because you're like, wait a minute, will the next time be the time he loses that ability to quote unquote control himself? One of the essays I wrote and was able to share to an audience was about a singular time amongst many where my dad really didn't like if we took long showers. Maybe a harken back to his military, all about control, I suppose. But we'd get kind of a warning. He'd yell, he'd be aggressive. But this one time, he actually came into the bathroom while I was showering, rattled the shower curtain a bit, and threatened to look at me while I was in the shower. I was freaked out. I remember this feeling of remembering how the vinyl shower curtain clung to my damp skin. And even that was embarrassing enough because I felt like that was more of an outline or more of what I wanted him to see. And he said, I'll look at you if I want to. He then snuck his hand into the shower and turned the water cold. I just remember feeling so scared, vulnerable, and so not safe. We were on a road trip and I had to use the toilet. I didn't have the option of going to a toilet. He would make me just squat outside the car. I wanted more sour cream on my bean and cheese burrito. He'd question if I really needed it because of my body size. I mean, I remember the first time my dad, I didn't want to kiss him on the lips anymore. I was probably early high school and it was a big fucking deal. He made me feel like shit for it for years that I would turn my cheek or did not want to kiss him on the lips. It's like gross to me, right? I couldn't imagine forcing my kids to kiss anybody. He used to try to trick. He'd go, okay, kiss me on the cheek. And then he'd turn his face real quick, trying to get you to land one. It just was ongoing every aspect of my body where there's still things I do today that I have to remind myself I'm a 40-year-old woman with my own family. And if the shower isn't squeegee correctly, no one's going to come in there, examine it, and then ridicule me for being lazy or not doing a good job. So it's those type of everyday normal things that are permeated by decades of ridicule, control, and scrutiny. Meth was his drug of choice. He was a functioning addict in a lot of ways. He maintained a business for three decades. He was at our practices. He did a lot of those things. And I remember having these really intense, dark conversations with him where he would say, look, if something's going to take me out, it's going to be the come down from meth. 
As a teenager and even a young adult, you can't quite contextualize what that means, except it's something pretty serious. Anytime you talk about or write about past traumas, it's crazy because it catapults you back to these moments. I think, hands down, the biggest escape for me was reading. I was the kid that had a book everywhere I went. I would sneak a flashlight into my bed at night after, you know, bedtime so I could read under the covers. Reading, I think that's where my love and passion for all things words really came into play. Despite some of the stories being fiction, you find so many ways to connect because so many experiences are universal. It was so needed and so beautiful to be able to escape. Sometimes I escaped into things like Stephen King novels and maybe there was a better novel to read in third or fourth grade than The Shining, but that's just what I gravitated towards. With the family life I was living, my hope for escape was unfortunately not rooted in myself, but in finding a relationship. Independence was fine as long as you were in a relationship. And so the first time I was able to get out of the house is when I had a boyfriend that invited me to live with him. I ultimately picked a situation that was not the same, but not very different. There were months of a pretty shitty relationship with abuse. And eventually I left him and moved back into the house. So I was kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. When I came home, my bedroom was already converted into an office. And so there was really no place for me to stay. And so I ended up living in my parents' camping trailer in the backyard for a good amount of time. That also then became something they both floated over me. In 2005, I found drugs in my parents' garage because we had suspicion that my dad was using drugs. So that was the first time where I had tangible evidence to my mom. She had cried and I was like, look, here this is, this is drugs. Something needs to change. And my mom was 100% on board. I thought for sure, this is the moment. My mom's eyes are open. Holy shit, life is going to change. That was one of the antecedents to a real big turning point. I think that was also the beginning of my dad seeing that, hmm, Nicole knows and is a little less bamboozled by my skills. And within 24 hours, my dad was able to convince my mom those drugs were his friends. He was just holding them. And in fact, I think Nicole has a drug problem because of how fast she talks and how much energy she has. Kind of these innocuous markers of a 20-year-old who is living life with friends. So then I was asked to leave the house temporarily. And a few months after that, he hit rock bottom. My mom had a feeling police were involved, the whole nine that comes with someone who's threatening to take their lives. Then again, it was another moment of this is going to be the turning point. I think people that live in this situation, it's eggshells and it's hope. And then you see something, you're like, this is going to change. And then it's not. How many times you live that cycle becomes a tally. I believe my parents did the best they could with what they had. And also it wasn't good enough for me. The history is important because one of the hardest things when you're making decisions to set boundaries with family members, and I feel the emotion come back up again, is because of that idea like, well, it's your dad, it's your mom. And that's something I'm still working through. That's the innate, but he's your dad. I could point out things in my house that he bought. And every time I'm like, oh, look, I remember my dad bought that. And my husband's immediately like, do you remember why he bought that? Do you remember what happened the day before? Eventually, I found banking, became a teller, and because I am pretty awesome in things I do, I became a lead teller and then a service manager. I was managing a branch, and so then I was able to move out 
and get a roommate. And that's when that freedom from the everyday occurrences really started happening for me. But then that space was filled with, well, when are you coming home? We want you here. And so then there was an extreme amount of pressure on me to be home and hanging out with them all the time. Even though I was physically out of the house, there was still a lot of fucking pressure to be involved with them. Boundaries are challenging. And I think the boundaries that really help you out are the most challenging to set because it really goes against the grain, especially abusers have kind of laid out for you. 2019 is the last time I've seen my dad and we went through something similar again. This time boundaries were made differently. There was different courses of action, but that was 14 years of some major shit that just pummeled me down to the point where before the end of 2019, my husband and I had already started talking about cutting my dad out because every interaction with my dad, we knew inevitably I'd be crying. He was doing his best to get my husband to be his buddy in arms, trying to get my husband to like talk shit about me right in front of me with him. It obviously wasn't working, but the biggest thing we knew was that we had a daughter. She was three years old. We were raising her with a voice saying no is okay. The simple idea too, now our generation is more okay with kids not hugging family members or anybody. We were in talks about it because of smaller events with my kids, like the classic, I said to say goodnight to me. I said to give me a hug. I haven't seen you. I miss you. I miss you. Did you hear me? I said, I miss you. And I'd be like, yes, they heard it. If they feel it, they'll say it back to you. It was triggering, of course, a lot of history and memories for me where that goes from a three-year-old. And if she's 10, what does that look like? So July of 2019, I get a call from my mom. Our best guess is that my dad was feeling abandoned a bit by my mom. She had a summer trip planned, which was the first time she had ever planned a trip away from my dad. So we think maybe he was feeling his grip lessen a little bit. We think maybe he used meth again to try to pick himself back up. He did get into a very depressed low state. We were able to get him hospitalized again because of failure to thrive. That's how we were able to get him admitted again. At this point, 2019, I have two kids. My oldest is three. My youngest is just under one. And I get the call that my dad's in the ER. As you can imagine, as a mother, and then hearing something like that about your father that you have so much conflicting feelings with, it was a scramble to see who I could get to take care of the kids so I could go support my mom, check in with my dad, drive down to Orange County. So it was just a lot, right? Because you're not just an individual trying to help out your parents. You're now a parent having to just figure out all the logistics. So I get down there. Eventually, the decision is made that he's going to go to a home of sorts. It's not a hospital setting. It's actually just about 15, 20 minutes from my house. They didn't have a way to transport him there. And so they asked him if on my way home, I would take my dad and drop him off to this inpatient closed facility. He wasn't allowed to like come and go. And so I remember having to have that conversation with my dad, like, hey, I see that you're in a bad way. I'm here. I love you. So now I'm providing support for someone who has given me support here and there and also has done egregious things to me, to my mom. And ultimately, I said, if I take you, are you going to try to jump out of the car? Because I'm scared. He agreed to be driven there where within a few hours, he's wanting to leave. And so my mom is now no longer available. So it becomes now on us. My husband agrees to pick up my dad who wants to be released, drive him back to Orange County. 
and is so worried, doesn't leave him and essentially stays for about a day. This feels important to share because when I sit here and know I set certain boundaries, it's good for me to relive some of those things that, yes, I did do this. I put in the effort in order to try to help and support my dad and a human that needed it. After my husband kind of sat with him, we did our best to be present while still having kids to take care of. He was inpatient for a while and I would drive down to the psychiatric facility through the months. We did a family intervention where not everyone followed the intervention model. We did inpatient, outpatient, and eventually it was a social worker in a hospital that flipped the switch for my mom. After decades of me knowing who my dad was and wishing for something different for her, it was a social worker that looked my mom in the face and was like, this man is an addict, he is a narcissist, period. My mom all of a sudden saw those to be true. Through all the living I did with them, that was like, oh my gosh, we're here. After my mom kind of had this veil lifted up, it came down to my dad needing to be released from the hospital. When it came time for his release, my mom told me, he's not gonna come home. I'm gonna say he does not have a home to come to. And I immediately supported that choice. I haven't seen him since the hospital in October of 2019. There was varying involvement from friends. My mom's estranged brother, my uncle, in an effort to save him. Our answer was always the same. You do what you need to do for yourself. We are not part of that journey for you. Eventually, I think my uncle found him, had him for a few months and came to the same conclusion that this person is not wanting help. This person is not wanting change. Mind you, I'm getting these updates while I'm mothering, while I'm doing pickup or making a snack plate. Here comes all the emotion again, right? Because there's no filter on my phone to be like, hey, give me a warning if this incoming call or text message is going to be about your father. It's just boom, information in your face. And then I have little ones there. Tessa at this point does know that her Papa G, as she called him, is no longer in our lives. She does know that his mind is not healthy. That's kind of the verbiage we used. We also bought children's books about addiction. No children's books about narcissism. That's on my list of things to do, honestly, is write a book that suited our needs. My dad did get a cell phone, and I know he got a cell phone because he sent me a picture of his smiling face, clean shaven, with a text message that you would have thought came from someone I hadn't talked to in like a few weeks and no egregious things had happened. That was one of the first parts of this journey where I really had the opportunity to choose to set a boundary for myself, which was, no, thank you. I am not interested. I set this boundary through mediated sessions. That was the first flex I really did in the hard work, as they say, of putting yourself forward. Historically, that's not what I was ever encouraged to do. Father's Day, two years ago now, we got an automated call from a bail bondsman because he had been arrested. And it was actually the first time that he had been arrested. It's now not the last. But I think because it was Father's Day and knowing that your dad's in jail for drug paraphernalia, it really challenges some of those feelings and beliefs and even boundaries. So this poem is just called Father's Day. Another update. You're held captive by your choices. 
Maybe you recognize the four walls and you know you can't escape. I wonder if the walls of your mind feel more confining than the bars surrounding you. Perhaps these moments where you pass along heavy with how to get more, when you'll get more, an obsession. You are there imprisoned by so much, more than the consequences and concrete. You are there, and for a few days, I have an answer to my daily question. I know you are there, and I'm here. And because I know one answer, I have another question. How are you? The current cage of your body will deny you the tool to use to anesthetize all the trauma, failures, and choices done to you and by you. How are you? Today, I know where you are. Last year, I didn't. I'm not sure if this is a gift for me or you. And today, I need you to know, I know you did the best you could. Happy Father's Day. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That was beautiful. There's a difference between being drawn to writing and reading and being public with what you've gone through. What compelled you to take that leap and to transfer your role from reader and consumer to creator? I was always drawn to reading and writing. I was the kid in all grades. Teachers were like, you're going to be a writer. It was never a focus or important until everything happened in 2019. Some of the first stuff I really started writing with intention was poetry. Journaling for me doesn't quite hit as being able to tap into the creative side of creating a piece that's also therapeutic. Around that time, I kind of knew I wasn't going to go back to work. The little wheels turned in my brain. I was like, I see people doing all this social media blogging thing. I can do that. I don't think I knew exactly what I intended to share or how I intended to share things. I just knew I needed to. And a lot of the roles I've had in life, I've been the person people came to. I was the person that bolstered people up. I liked seeing light bulbs go off for people. I liked encouraging people or helping people. And if that meant I had to be goofy or intense or vulnerable, I was always willing to do that. The way I first started, all the things motherish is actually the second name before I tried that moment. And my friends were like, yeah, I don't get it. That that wasn't really who I was and trying to create memes or things like that wasn't authentic. And so I picked my brain and came up with all the things motherish. I've always been a person that's fairly comfortable in front of a crowd, enjoy speaking. A friend of mine shared over a story or an Instagram post from Expressing Motherhood, which was this idea of you can write an essay, submit it, and perhaps she'll pick it. And then you get to read that essay in front of a crowd. I wrote an essay. I wasn't selected for the show. We still bought tickets and went to the show, which was amazing. But the feedback I got from Lindsay, who's the creator of Expressing Motherhood, was so powerful. In education, they always tell you, be that one adult for that kid, because all it takes is one adult to have such an impact. And it was really her encouragement and also, hey, I see you and hear you in that story, gave me the hope that, hey, I could do this and I could make something out of this. And so that's when All the Things Motherish was really born and came up with All the Things Motherish because the phrase, people use it all the time, right? All the things. It's all the things for grocery shopping, for life. It really felt in those years, I was experiencing healing. I was experiencing mothering. I was experiencing the decision to stay at home. I mentioned I built a website on my own. I'm very proud of that website. It has my poetry, it has my essays, it has a Dear Me and You series, even some of the microfiction I write. So it's basically a love spot of all the words I write. Doing this again in the midst of mothering is always an interesting thing because 
your time is not completely your own. And when you're learning something new, it takes a different kind of brain focus. And when you're interrupted consistently, it's super challenging to get any writing done, to get any creating done. I did it. And that was like the first tap on my back for myself. And then I started writing more essays. And then I figured out how I wanted to share them out on Instagram. Really what kept me going, besides the release I got at telling some of these experiences that I hadn't shared to anyone, was that one person, one woman, somewhere else that I didn't know would write, thank you. Or wow, that was so vulnerable. Or oh my gosh, that had such an impact. Or I'm not alone. The myriad of phrases that someone feels when they read a piece that connects to them. What's nice too about sharing things and writing things is, has anyone ever experienced the exact same thing? Maybe somewhere, right? But generally, the experiences make you feel the same. I think when I share, then I'm learning like, wow, the world is a lot smaller as far as human experiences go. I guess the most annoying feedback to me was from family. There was resistance. Why is she airing out our dirty laundry? That I enjoy being the victim and that I am using my victimness to garner attention. But if I were to compile the short list of people that have had those grievances, it's because it's them. I think it's challenging when you start delving into this world and people are still kind of existing in my life. I've tried to maintain talking about my own experiences, my own feelings, and not trying to blame or pinpoint and also maintain a sort of respect for people that haven't always given it to me for two reasons. Because I, at the end of my journey of life, I don't want to regret the choices I've made. And also, I have children that don't read my work right now because as much as we are honest, we parent age appropriately and there's just too much stuff and meat in there for me to try to break down for a three, five and seven year old. However, this is going to be kind of an autobiography of them for sorts to be able to access when they are ready to. I don't know where relationships will end up. And I want them to see that, wow, mom went through all this. Mom was capable of still being who she is to her core, which is a kind, truthful, direct, takes no shit person. <laughs> so I've been plugging away at writing essays and submitting slowly. Eventually, I did submit again to Expressing Motherhood, and I was selected for a virtual show because pandemic. And then another piece I got to do in front of an audience, which was so exhilarating and also super powerful when that external validation aligns with your mission of impacting people for the good. I didn't like the words trauma or abuse when I first started therapy. I didn't like the fact that those words applied to me. I think it's important to normalize the language around abuse and trauma. Now that you have shared your shit in writing, in blog, in poetry, in live piece, what do you find the most healing and why? My gut reaction is to say verse, because it feels like there's a different kind of freedom when you get to write something in poetry. I once had a poem weaponized against me by a family member, which I thought was really interesting and shows the power of poetry as far as it's left to the reader's experiences and interpretation of how their mind works in order to pull from it. I feel that poetry in a lot of ways can be more helpful, like a tarot card, this idea that you pull a tarot card and you're looking at it and there's a basic meaning of the tarot, but how you interpret it is left ultimately up to your own human experiences. And I feel like poetry 
is a more universally accepted version of a kind of tarot card. Poetry for me when I write it often is old school, still in a journal, because it generally means either I just got some new information that's challenging for me to process or something really impactful happened. Poetry doesn't seem to pour out of me for really good things yet. I'm hoping that at some point my poetry gets a little lighter. What other tools or resources have you leaned on in this journey? I had tried therapy years ago and I wasn't ready. I think for therapy really to have its impact, you have to know that you will be filleted like a fish and that that's necessary in order to be cooked to perfection. When I started therapy after everything that happened in 2019, I found a therapist. I was confined a lot by kids' schedule. I know it can be challenging to find a therapist or anything for that matter, because as mothers especially, it's not just our world we are in charge of. This therapist that I found really helped me out of the crisis mode. I was having severe anxiety attacks to the point where I had to call my mother-in-law over because I thought I was dying. I didn't think I was going to be able to take care of the baby and the toddler. Later, of course, I figured out that's not what was happening. I was actually very much alive. What was interesting, though, the therapist and I, our relationship had shifted. One of the things I've learned is that you find someone who's supposed to help you, and they do, and that relationship can change and no longer be beneficial, and that's okay. Just like my relationship with my dad changed. And so making that decision, especially when you're a person who's come from abuse and trauma, it was challenging. I did it and eventually found another therapist who I've been with now for two years. I think she and I were meant to find each other. I am a person who's read all my life. I have studied many things. I've done many things. I'm pretty good with people. And I think that was a survival skill I learned early on. I often had to navigate my dad and I was sent in by my mom to do it. This therapist that I found, the way she was able to call me on some of the tactics that I could easily use with my past therapist was a breath of fresh air. She also recognized that I have an education, that I'm not coming in with no information whatsoever, which was very empowering and made it feel more like a partnership on my journey than someone there to drop all this knowledge on me. Besides talk therapy, I also do EMDR. I'm starting the journey, I think, of going back to school to become a therapist. So I'm actually in two classes right now. And then also with other things that I use, I started screaming more. When I go on my hikes, when I'm at the top of whatever the top was for me that day, I started practicing big from the depths of the darkest part of my body, letting out these big screams. I cannot encourage that for people enough. It is pretty amazing. It's part of getting back to your body and also releasing. So I set an intention for what I'm releasing in my scream, and it feels like my body is instantly lighter. That's amazing. It's returning and releasing at the same time. That word and has become very pivotal in my life. In fact, it's one of the stickers I have with all the things motherish on it. And I got it tattooed on my arm last year because the idea of duality when you're on a journey of any kind is so important. Do you have any advice for people unparenting themselves and breaking cycles as you have? Everyone says, give yourself grace. I would cringe at that because I was raised like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps type situation. And so this idea of being kind to myself is strange. But the way I've worked it out now with the help of my therapist is, how would you react to one of your children coming to you with XYZ? So 
whatever I'm struggling with or however I'm beating myself up, how would you tell your kids or how would you model for them through this experience? And I almost immediately like go, okay, fine, fuck, I hear it. But it's so true because the way I have spent so much time and energy deciding and being the parent I want to be to unparent myself really is evolving down to being that same person to myself. So when I am having a rough day because some news was just delivered about my dad or an interaction I had was really rough, I have been more snappy with my kids. I think besides reading tons of books and going to school to literally learn how to teach people, teach youth in particular, I think you have two paths to go when you're in a household of abuse and trauma. That was your model, so you copy it. Or every time your child does something, your mind has to kind of play a game with itself very quickly and hopefully while you're taking some deep breaths to figure out what your course of action is going to be for the kind of parent you want to be for how you want your kids to feel in that moment and then decades later. And I'm vocal about this on my platform because it's about what you do right afterwards. My parents never apologized to me for anything. They never checked in with how I felt. They never took accountability. My mom has in more recent years, but as a child and young adult, they never took accountability for things. So my advice is to take a moment and think about how do you wish you were treated in that moment and then treat yourself that way. One of the big things that I try to teach the kids because we have to function in a world with other people (laughs) is that, and it's cliche, but you don't know what someone's day looks like. You don't know what news they received in the morning or in the afternoon. If we were all a little more capable of being empathetic and trying to take pause and realize that a lot of people's reactions are about them and not about us, I think the world would shape up to be a smoother operating environment. Thank you, Nicole, for the raw, beautiful content you create, but also for being so raw and open and sharing so much. I appreciate you. I appreciate that you asked. It's the more people like you create spaces for people like me to talk about things that have happened. That's how change is made. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. People kept coming forward. It really speaks to the type of person that he is. He's been pulling stuff like this and just screwing people over for so many decades. There's still probably so many women out there that we probably will never even know about. I can't even imagine the scope of how far his reach was, but I'm just thankful that we can rely on, the information is out there now. It's out there. He can't run from it. He can't hide from it. You Google him, all of this comes up. The change petition comes up. The stranger article comes up. There's nothing that he can do that he can hide from that. He can try and change his name from Jake to Jacob. He can't lie about all of this stuff the way that he did before. This season, on a personal note and from a creator standpoint, working on it with the survivors and the relationship that I got to build with them, the trust we were able to build and the care that they brought was one of the joys of my lifetime. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. 
check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.